Thanks, Jerry. Um, that's great. Uh, for those of you I haven't seen since I broke my foot, I've broken my foot, which is why I'm standing here looking like this. I fell down a hole in Birmingham. I'm, that's, not, um, that's not anything um, negative about Birmingham. It's just falling down holes anywhere when you're looking at your phone. Here's my tip for the new year. Do not move, do not walk down the street whilst looking at your phone. It can get you into all sorts of um, uh, dangers and problems. Um, so... Um, I'd like to tell you a story, and it's a true story, and it's a true story about two people in this church who are part of this community. And um, the first person in the story is Alf. Many of you will know Alf and remember Alf. Alf died um, something over a year ago now, and Alf had been a part of this church, member of this church, part of this community for many, many years, long before I was. And Alf always used to come, sit down the front, and many of you would have um, listened to his stories of London life. He'd lived in London all of his life. He worked in Fleet Street. He lived on Wellington Mills, and we miss him very much indeed. Um, the thing about Alf is this, is he knew just about everything there was to know about the Blitz because he'd lived through the Blitz and because he'd been in Fleet Street, he'd spent his life producing and editing words about all sorts of stories. He was just like a mine of information. And uh, there's a young man in the church who I don't think is here today, but um, uh, in the church who was at primary school then and he had to do a project on the Second World War. Um, and so I introduced him to Alf uh, because Alf knows everything about the Second World War. And as you all remember, those of you who ever talked to Alf, could talk the hind leg off a donkey for hours and hours and hours. And so uh, this uh, young lad and uh, Alf struck up a friendship around a Second World War project. And uh, I think the project went uh, very well. In fact, I know it went very well because um, it's one of the Oasis schools here. And, um, but this, that's not the story. The story is this. A year and a bit ago, Elf died. And uh, we celebrated his life um, at here in this building. Uh, we thanked God for the way he'd lived his life so brilliantly for the fact that he was a friend to so uh, many people. And um, after the celebration of Elf's life, um, I had to go with the family, and perhaps one or two of you as well came. We went to the crematorium for the committal of Elf's body. And um, we climbed, I climbed into the hearse, and I sat at the front of the hearse with the guy who was driving the hearse. And then the family were in another hearse behind. And because it was a funeral, we had special permission to stop on the curbside here. And so I got into the hearse and I sat there in the front. And I looked at the crowd, perhaps some of you were in the crowd, who gathered on the pavement and on the steps here uh, to say goodbye to Elf. And as the car drew away slowly, you know a hearse will always drive slowly for those first hundred yards and somebody will walk in front of the car. I saw this same young man who I'd introduced to Alf and who, and, and who had been helped in his Second World War project by Alf. And I saw him with his mum stood on the pavement there and I watched him 
cry. And it was one of the most uh, beautiful occasions for me during that year, the year before last. Because as I drove to the crematorium, I realized what church actually is. Church is the opportunity for people who never know each other from different age groups and different backgrounds and different outlooks and different opinions. Church is the opportunity for people from different ethnicities and language, language groups and nationalities to come together and to be enriched. And actually, though that young man's tears were tears of pain, for me, they created tears of joy because I knew the truth is, I know him well, his life is richer because he knew Elf. And I ask you this question, where else in society does that actually happen on a regular basis? Where we get a chance to be with people who we wouldn't normally be with. We get a chance to hear views that aren't our own. We get a chance to grow and to be strengthened and to be deepened uh, by one another. Over these um, next few months, uh, next couple of months, as Kate's just said, we're going to look at this series, The Church. Why do we do that? The church, why do we do that? And this morning, I'm going to talk about gather. Why do we do that? Why do we gather? Next week, we're going to talk about why do we do that? Youth and children's work. The week after, why did we do that? Read the Bible. The church, and why do we do that? The week beyond. Preach, why do we preach? The church, why do we do that? Communion. The church, why do we do that? Tell others. The church, why do we do that? Sing. And on the last week, we're going to look at the church. Why do we do that? Have coffee. <laughs> or, or tea or water or <laughs> anything else or croissants or beer or wine or whatever it might be. We're going to look at what the church actually is. But that story I've just told you is really at the heart of the reason we gather, because we're more, more whole if we gather. When we fragment ourselves, we shrink. A person wrapped up in their own interest makes a very small parcel. A person who's engaged with others, who serves others, uh, finds real strength themselves. For a long time, we've really known, uh, endless research tells us, every new piece of research reinforces that, this, that in the early stages of life, this is when children develop the skills and the knowledge and they learn the roles necessary to function within their culture and their social environment. In our early years, we learn. My um, four grandsons now, I've got four grandsons, we had another little grandson, Ari, who was sitting over there earlier and seems to have got bored of listening to me already and headed off somewhere else. I've got four uh, little grandsons now. They're all part of this church. And I know that this church, and I'm saying this for their parents because I know that their parents, my children would say this, being part of this church, this community, you, not just me, you, us together, are the building blocks that create in a person the breadth and the depth, the ability to socialize, to learn and to listen to, to learn all those lessons of life which really equip you to get by. 
Though Oasis, as you know, is hugely, wholly and totally committed to excellent education in terms of um, formal education, and here comes Emily across there and she's going to be very embarrassed that I talk about her, but Emily, besides being part of the church, is the deputy head at an, at an Oasis school in Silvertown, Oasis Academy Silvertown, so Emily could say this with more passion and, and commitment than I can say. But though we are absolutely, totally committed to the opportunity for every young person to stretch themselves academically, there should be no holding back for anyone. And that's why we run 50 schools around the country. We all know this, that all of that academic learning without socialization, without the depth of belonging, being held in community, discovering your identity in your community, having the rough edges knocked off of you in community is no good. Absolutely no good. And as we all know, you can be hugely intelligent and hugely dysfunctional in community. That's why we need one another. So these early years shape a young person. They need community. But actually, the psychologists tell us that socialization amongst adults is an ongoingly significant thing. We all need to regularly be together in order to grow. This is nothing necessarily about church. It's just we need to be together to grow. A person who's isolated becomes idiosyncratic. That's what we say at first. And then we use the word awkward. And then we use the word obnoxious. And then we use the word lonely. We need one another. We need one another uh, to grow. Um, the research tells us that young adults um, who feel a sense of belonging in a community, particularly in a small community, develop fewer psychiatric and depressive disorders. And that those who do not have a feeling of being loved and belonging are most vulnerable to mental health issues. All the research tells us this. There's a new piece of research almost every week for sad people like me who are addicted to listening to the Radio 4 programme, the Today programme in the morning, even though I find it utterly depressing. Uh, the truth is, every other day there's a new piece of research that seems to come out that tells us we belong together. But belonging to community is a hard thing. And it's a hard thing because it's not a club. When you belong to a club, the Labour Club, the Conservative Club, the Football Club, the Golf Club, whatever it is, the thing is, everybody has a thing that they are the same. We tend to hang around with people who are the same as us. Do you ever meet somebody who comes up to you and they take objection to what you said, say, and they say, everyone thinks that you are, everyone's saying that you were. And what they mean is, the two other people I know and talk to, they agree with me. And they agree with me because they're the same as me anyway. The great thing about church is it's not a club. It is diverse. But we can turn it into a club if we always hang around and have coffee with the people who are like us, with the people who are our age, with the people who are in our 
do you know, in our sphere of life or our phase of life with the people who do the same kind of jobs as us. If we don't cross the room and do that bold thing of engaging with someone we've never spoken to before, we will not learn and we will not grow and we will not develop. So do that over coffee today without stealing any thunder from why we have coffee together. Look around and say, hey, who's here who I've never spoken to? I've seen that person for five years and I've never actually said hi to them. Take that opportunity. It's amazing what you'll discover. It's amazing uh, how you will grow. We learn from diversity. And that is what church is. Some of you would have heard me say this before, but I say it again because Jesus repeated it time and time again. He said, love your enemy. But he didn't add, love your enemy um, because although it's a form of torture to you, it would do them good. He didn't say, love your enemy, because if you loved them, they might turn out not to be half the kind of waste of space as you think that they are to start with. Jesus said this. He said, love your enemy. In this way, you become the child of your heavenly father. He wasn't so interested in what loving your enemy did for your enemy. Jesus' whole comment is, love your enemy, in this way you become children of your heavenly father. He was interested in the outcome for me of loving the person who's not like me. Because, as I, you would have heard some of you may say this before, truth is worth repeating, isn't it? When I cross the room and I engage with someone who's different to me, who holds a different opinion to me, I am forced to confront all the dark bits in my life, all my prejudice that I've clung onto and buried deep inside and don't even want to confront. I am forced to confront my own little dark pieces and the dark pieces of my soul and my prejudices. And that is good for me, which is why I believe Jesus said, love your enemy in this way you become the children like your heavenly father. That's important. Now, we all go to church. If we didn't, we wouldn't be here. And I've been to church all my life, actually. I've been part of a church since before I can remember being part of a church. Didn't always like it, but I kind of stuck with it one way or the other. And, uh, And I always, you know, figured that I went to church like Jesus went to synagogue. You know, if you read the Gospels, it says in in, uh, uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, that Jesus was part of a synagogue in Nazareth, you know, and some of you will know the famous story of how Jesus goes to his hometown, Nazareth, and he stands up in his synagogue and he's handed the scroll to read, the book uh, of Isaiah to read, and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord is on me and he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, etc., 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 and you kind of think, I used to think, well, you know, Jesus went to synagogue, I go to church. You know, Baptist churches are the same thing as synagogues, really, except for one big difference. Synagogues meet on Saturdays, as we all know. We do it on Sunday. You know, synagogue, church, church, synagogue. Churches and synagogues are not similar. They are not in the same category. It is a category error that we have made. Let me explain what a synagogue was. For a start, this may be a bit of a shock to you, but although we all know that Jews worship in synagogues, yeah, and we all know that the Old Testament is the history of the Jewish people, yeah, there are no synagogues in the whole of the Old Testament. 
I don't suppose you've ever thought about that before, but isn't it really strange? Jews worship in synagogues, but there is not one synagogue in the whole of the Old Testament. For the sake of this recording, in case anybody is listening who's going to go, ah, that Steve Chalky's a heretic, he always says things like this, and I can prove him wrong. (laughs) Because there are a lot of them out there, let me tell you. For the sake of the recording, there is one incident of the use of the term synagogue at the end uh, towards the end of just one syn- uh, one term i 'll leave it to all the people who want to f- uh, figure these things out to look up the reference, but there is one usage of the term synagogue in the Old Testament in the King James version written in sixteen eleven it does not occur in any translation written later than 1611 because people figured out it was a mistake. Synagogues did not exist in the days of the Old Testament, none of the days, that, you know, the huge length of time that the Old Testament covers. So the question is, where did synagogues come from? Where did they arise from? And why do they exist? Why am I, I mean, they're all over the world now. And Jesus went to one. So if the Old Testament closes and never has a synagogue be mentioned, and the New Testament opens and there's one in Nazareth, where on earth did these things come from? Well, there are two theories. You know, every time you you should learn a piece of technical stuff, shouldn't you? So here are the two theories. There is what's called um, the intertestamental theory about synagogue development. Got that? You can say that to your friends, impress them the intertestamental theory on, on synagogue development. And there's what's called the post-intertestamental theory, <laughs> theory on synagogue. That's true. Honestly, it is. You can go spend the next four years of your life doing a PhD and you'll discover that's true. There are two theories about the development of synagogues. Uh, but they both boil down to the same thing, really. It's just a, a, a sense of timing. You see, what happens is, at the end of the Old Testament, as, as you know, uh, the people of Israel are in complete disarray. They had had hopes of being a great nation, but now they've been beaten down by the Assyrians, then they've been beaten down by the Babylonians, and now they're going to be beaten by the Greeks, and then by the Romans. They're robbed of all sense of identity. Back to the Old Testament. Where did... Jews used to worship. There were no synagogues. Now, I know it's terrible when you go, uh, go, go to church and they do this kind of teaching by rote thing and they say, where did Jews worship? And you say your best answer and you go, nope, you're wrong. So I'm not going to ask you to do that. People might be thinking, oh, well, if there were no synagogues, Jews used to worship in the temple. There was only one temple and it was in Jerusalem. There weren't loads of temples. Do you know, it was just one temple. Um, But that's not the right answer. Of course they worshipped in the temple occasionally, but they lived all over a whole country. They can't beetle up to the um, temple every Saturday. It's miles and miles. You know, you'd be forever, you know, horse and cart was a slow form of transport. You'd be forever walking towards the temple or walking home and just in time to get some sandwiches to head off the next Saturday. It was impossible. The Jews didn't worship in the temple. They went there annually. They went there for festivals and uh, harvest festivals, etc., etc., Passover. Where Jews worship was in their homes. Now, that's really important. 
because we get to begin to understand the difference between churches and synagogues. Jews worshipped in their homes because their homes weren't like ours. Jewish life, Eastern life, was extended family life. There were endless aunts and uncles and cousins and, well, just people. The home was the meeting place. The home was the belonging place. The home gave you community because it was extended and it was intergenerational. And there were endless people who were called uncle that you knew weren't actually a genetic uncle. They were just uncles. I was talking to Jim down uh, here yesterday and he was telling me about a guy uh, called Santosh who uh, came uh, to, uh, to work with Oasis when he was uh, in his teens uh, uh, in, uh, in, in, in Bangalore. Uh, Jim and Jane worked for Oasis in India, then they worked for Oasis in Mozambique for five years, and then they worked for Oasis, uh, they worked for Oasis in Kyrgyzstan. And now they're working for Oasis in London and part of this church. So they know probably more about Oasis around the world than I do. And, um, and Jim was telling me this, Jim and Jane were telling me this story. Well, Jim was saying that this, this story to me, that it, it, it was in 1997, to, uh, 1997, 1999, in the closing years of the last um, century, um, that we set up this thing in Bangalore called Paperworks, which is a great opportunity for kids out the slums to, um, uh, to learn a skill. And they made paper mache figures. In fact, Corny and I have got three kings, you know, the Magi, and we put them out this Christmas, and they were actually made in Bangalore by Oasis Paperworks. We did that for a long time. And this kid called Santosh, who lived in a slum, proper, proper, proper slum, um, and uh, who's father had abandoned him and whose mother was alcoholic as endless people are in those slums just to kind of slums just to blot out the harsh realities of life he came to oasis and he asked for help and he joined the paperworks uh, thing in bangalore and uh, he did that whole course uh, and of course you're teaching people to work with paper mache but actually they're belonging to community and they're they're getting loads of friendships in just the way I've talked about. Anyway, the thing is, years and years of years have gone past since then. And Jim, uh, through the wonders of uh, modern social media, um, well, Santosh got in touch with Jim. And day before yesterday, on Friday, Jim and Santosh spoke together. And Santosh is now 35. He's married. He's got two kids. He's a manager in a company. Um, he's doing well in life. He line manages people, and uh, Jim said, because they had a video uh, call together, even looks cool. <laughs> That's just Jim being jealous. I don't know. <laughs> no, you look cool, Jim. He looks cool. And anyway, so the thing is, the thing is this. Here is Santosh through the community of Oasis through those years. He's been lifted out of his poverty, poverties of all sorts. And uh, the truth is, as Jim, Jane and I uh, and Cornelia talked about it, the thing is, it's not just him who's been lifted out of his poverties. It's his whole family forever. It's his children. It's all the people that he line manages. It's the hope that comes to a vast number of people because of one interaction. So you see, when we stop, and we talk with one another and we spend time with one another. 
huge differences come about. That's what happened in a Jewish family. Jim uh, told me on the phone, uh, Jim told me that on this call, uh, Santosh, who's 35, kept, didn't call Jim Jim, he just called him uncle all the way through. He kept saying uncle, didn't refer to Jim as a name once, just uncle. Are they genetically part of the same family? No. But Santosh knows that Jim is his uncle and that has been part of his salvation. That's what a Jewish family was like. The problem is that as, uh, as um, the people were driven into exile and as their country was taken over by this series of superpowers, the family was struggling to hold community together. And the two theories of the development of a synagogue are this. The intertestamental theory is that between the two testaments, there's a 400-year gap between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. In that 400-year period, synagogues grew up as a second structure, a safety net to support everyone because the family under the pressure of exile and coming back into the country but being under the boot of these superpowers was stretching the family, the extended family that made everyone belong beyond what it could bear. So the synagogue developed as this tier to support that. The post-intertestamental theory is exactly the same. The difference is simply one of timing. The synagogue, you see, wasn't a place you rocked up to on a Sunday to sing some songs and listen to a talk. I mean, it was that, but that wasn't really what it was about. It did that. The synagogue was the social center. It was the leisure center. Synagogues were the schools. Do you know that? The, Jew, the Jew, Jewish uh, people developed a, a system of primary school, particularly long before most people, and it was all in the synagogue. And the synagogue was the medic, medical center, and the synagogue was the retirement center, and the synagogue was the hanging around talking to your friends center, and the synagogue was the job center. The synagogue was the safety net in society where everyone belonged. And do you know something? You couldn't not belong to the synagogue. Is it, you, honestly true. You could say, I don't believe in Yahweh. I don't believe that my people, the people of Israel, crossed the Red Sea. I think it was the Red Puddle. I don't, but I don't agree. I, I, you know, these miracles don't happen. I don't believe any of this stuff. I've got no faith at all. And yet the synagogue still said, you belong. You cannot not belong because this is a social structure in society to bind us together. You are in. You can't be out. So there was never a question of, how do I become a member of the synagogue? You were a member of the synagogue because it was the safety net in every community. Our question, how do I become a member of a church? How do I become a Christian? It was a bonkers question in terms of the Jews. You were in and the synagogue was there for you. And this is where you belong. This is where life will make sense for you. So that's our goal, it strikes me, to create that kind of community. That's why we gather. And we gather not, as Kate said it, didn't she, not just on Sundays. We need to gather every day of the week in lots of different groups. So you might think of this as church, but when you meet your friend in uh, the coffee house midweek to sit and chat, you might consider that just sitting in a coffee house to sit and chat. But actually it's church. And when you play football, some of those of you play football on a Monday night, or when you kind of uh, do aerobics, or when all those super fit 
people here with Andrew do that kind of incredible workout whenever it is. And, and all of those things, or when you help, you know, with the food bank, I, you know, it's thank you to everybody who worked for the, uh, on the food bank thing over, Chris, thing over Christmas, or when we sing carols on the station, all the thousands of things that you're doing that I've not talked about, because my brain's too small to remember them all, and this service is too short to talk about them all. They are all church Every single one of them. So, have you heard of a guy called M. Scott Peck? He wrote, uh, he wrote a famous book called uh, The Road Less Travelled. Do, you know, do you know that? Yeah? And um, I tried putting my notes on my um, uh, iPad, and um, it's just sharp. So, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, there you go. I'll have to make up the rest. So, uh, <laughs> now, M. Scott Peck wrote A Road Less Travelled. And uh, he wrote, he wrote uh, sev- uh, several books about community, that are hugely famous books. And um, this, um, this is what he says about community. He says, we're all in search of true community. But he says, the problem is that when we first together, we don't have community, we have pseudo-community. You see, in other words, when you first come along to this uh, church here, you know, you know how it goes, don't you? You go, oh, they're all so nice. Oh, they're all so kind. They're all supply. Supply. I just met her. She's the nicest person I've ever met. I don't think I've ever met a woman that kind in my life. So polite, so generous, so listening. I, I met him. He, he's the coolest person I've ever met. I'm going to hang around this church forever. It's just so good. What um, M. Scott Peck says is that's not community. It's pseudo-community. It's based on not really knowing, not really understanding. See you, Marianne. You're coming back? Oh, that's good. See you. (laughs) It's it's based on pseudo-community. You don't really know people, you just think you know them. But we can do this personally as well, don't we? When you first meet a person, it's like um, infatuation, isn't it? You first meet the person, they're the most wonderful, kindest, most most generous person ever. Oh, I I love them. uh, They're the most intelligent. They're the best person ever, ever, ever. Bart says, um, M. Scott Peck, in order to become real community, something needs to happen. How do you get from pseudo-community to true community? He says the only way is through chaos. And chaos is when you go, well, blow. If I'd have known she was really like that, I would have never spoken to her in the first place. Do you know all the things that are wrong with Oasis Church Waterloo? Do you know what they don't do, what they haven't got? Do you know that minister, what he can't see, what he doesn't understand? Do you know that leadership team? Did you see them? Can you see what's wrong with that bunch of goons up the front? I know it's not balanced. We should get this. We should get that. Well, it's okay we do this, but we don't do it very well. In order to create community, you have to head through chaos. In your personal relationships, you've got to get through the stage where you're totally infatuated with one another and you can't wait to be together forever for life. Dave and Anna. (laughs) 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 Two, I cannot believe I'm engaged to this bloke. (laughs) 
Oh, you got there already. <laughs> and uh, so M. Scott Peck says, this leads to emptiness. <laughs> it leads you to that point where you are empty. You can't impress the other person anymore. You can't impress, you're not impressed by anyone, etc., etc., and you know they're not impressed by you. But that stage of emptiness is actually the ignition point of true community. It's only at that point that we really come to know one another. Until then, we're just playing games. Some people, you know, hop churches all their lives. Because they go to a church for a little bit, and it's not very good at that. So then they choose another one. And they go to a church for a little bit, and it's not very good at something else. And so then they go to another one, and it's not very good at something else. This community is not perfect. If you're still in the phase of pseudo-community, you've been part of this community for a little bit of time, and you think it's all wonderful, and you think, you know, we've got the best leadership team in the world, and I'm the best church leader in the world, and this is the best gathering in the world, that's called pseudo-community because it's a fantasy. It's an infatuation. But the thing about infatuation is it's a bit like being drunk. In the end, you need to sober up. When you're infatuated, you need to sober up. And when you sober up, then you're plunged into chaos because you see all the cracks and the flaws. And that leads to an emptiness. But of course, the true emptiness is realizing that you are flawed and cracked as well. If this church, this community was a perfect one and I stepped into it, it certainly wouldn't be for very much longer after that because I am flawed and I am broken and I beat myself up about my insensitivity sometimes and that I didn't say that, I could have said that, I didn't notice that. I'm sure you're the same. We know our failings, but it's through that that we find real community. When you know me for who I am and you don't reject me, and I know you for who you are, and I don't reject you. That is community, and that's what a synagogue is and was. Um, over Christmas, I think uh, one of the services over Christmas, I told a story, and with this I closed, by a guy called, um, that, that I learned from a guy called Fred Craddock, a brilliant speaker. I said when I told another story from him, that um, my friend Tony Campolo, who I learned so much about communication from, he tells me that he learned so much about communication from Fred Craddock. Fred Craddock was an extraordinary um, individual and uh, died, in, uh, died a few years ago now. And um, Fred Craddock uh, tells this story. Uh, his father was alcoholic. He grew up in Tennessee, um, in, a, in a small town in Tennessee, his father was a brilliant um, thinker, Shake, um, Sh Shakespearean academic, um, knew Shakespeare inside out, upside down, but he was alcoholic. And his father, um, Fred says his father uh, was fine at home, except he was totally unreliable. He was never violent, but he was totally unreliable. And um, it was perhaps because of that that Fred says his mum started going to church. And Fred loved his dad. His dad was a great storyteller. He says that's where he learned the uh, skill of telling stories from. Uh, but the dad, his dad never went. 
And all his dad would do was complain that Sunday lunch was always late because um, mum and the kids were always back home late from church. And he said, I'm never going to that church, you know, because that church, all they want is your membership and your money. They're after membership and money. Every church is after membership and money. It's just membership and money, membership and money, membership and money. And Fred recounts how occasionally the church would probably, because of his mum, try to reach out to his dad and uh, some church leaders or someone else would come call in and they'd knock on the door and, and they'd have arguments in the end with Fred's dad because he wasn't having any of it and he'd slam the door and he'd say, all they want is your membership and your money, your membership and your money, that's just it. Fred Craddock tells the story how years and years later his, his father lived to a good age but was dying in hospital. And he'd got um, cancer, throat cancer, so he couldn't speak and he couldn't eat. Um, it hurt him just to swallow. And Fred went to see his dad in hospital. He flew in to see him because he was now, then in another city. And Fred tells the story of how when he enters his dad's um, room, it's just decked bunches of flowers and plants everywhere and how there's cards he says just layers and layers and layers deep and there's fruit in this bowl and that bowl fruit that his dad can never eat because he can't eat and he can't swallow and Fred picks up one of the cards and he reads it and then he reads another one and then he reads another one and he looks at a little um, slip that's been put in with some of the fruit. And he realizes that every single card, and there are hundreds and hundreds of them, and every single gift is from the church. The church that his dad would never go to because they just want your membership and your money. Fred's dad looked at him. He couldn't speak any longer. But he picked up, says Fred, an, um, a box of tissues. It was a Kleenex box of tissues, Fred says, and there was a pen. And he wrote on the side of the, the box a line from Hamlet. And it said simply this. Even in pain, tell my story. And Fred said to his dad... What is your story, Dad? What is your story? And his dad, in the last hours of his life, it turned out, wrote on the Kleenex box, my story is this. I was wrong about the church. Because in those last days of his life, he'd been just exhausted by the generosity that he'd known. We are here for one another. We are here for one another, not taken in. We don't, we're not looking for pseudo-community. Click, 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 stand up, sing some songs, say a few prayers, have a quick coffee and escape. That's never going to be fulfilling. You won't last long. We've got to push through the chaos and the emptiness to discover real community in knowing each other who for who we actually are. That's why the church gathers. Let me pray for you.
Father, we thank you for one another. At the beginning of this new year, as we made those commitments to each other earlier in the service, we thank you for one another, for the different experiences of life that we bring, because of the lessons that we've learned through hardship and pain and failure, because of the lessons we've learned through the disciplines we've developed and the skills that we have. We thank you for one another, and we thank you that in this place is a richness and a depth that can enhance every single life at every single stage of our lives. Be with us through this year as we grow in relationship with one another. And in our growing in relationship with one another, as we pledged earlier, we know that we're always called to bring hope, to reach out, to be engaged, to bring good news into this community and other communities, the communities we, where we work, the communities where we live, this geographical community. Be with us to that end. This is our prayer. Amen.